0: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. And here's what's ahead. The market is turning its back on the stay-at-home trade and flocking to the get-me-out-of-here stocks. Retail, restaurants, and big brewers are all heading higher. Is this market getting too ahead of itself? We'll ask. Plus, getting out of the house means getting back to the office, back to travel, and more. We'll go inside what The Wall Street Journal is calling the new careful economy, see what it's going to look like. Plus, to infinity and beyond, in just a few hours from now, NASA, in partnership with Elon Musk, will launch two astronauts into space, the meaning of this major milestone coming up. But we do begin with today's markets. Bob Bassani here with a look at all of that. Robert?
1: And we've been a little choppy today, but the basic theme still continues. The trend still continues, and that's broadening out. And it's not just Fang anymore, folks. In fact, they're down today. It's the small caps are continuing to outperform. That's what you want to see. We're taking bank stocks, for example, continuing to outperform. Boy, is that something to see. They're finally breaking out. Industrials are breaking out, too. Caterpillar's had a great week. GE's had a great week. The retailers even. Heavens, Kohl's has had a good week. Who would have thought that? That's what I mean by broadening out of the rally. Where are they getting the money to buy all this stuff? Well, some of those tech names that are mega caps are not doing so well this week overall. So Netflix, Facebook, uh, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, Apple, look at that, all to the downside. Finally, a little underperformance here. One wag this morning, one investor called it Zoom fatigue. Some of these stocks like Zoom and DocuVision, uh, DocuSign, excuse me, Zynga, Activision that have been market leaders on the stay at home. They're finally moving to the downside. I view this as healthy and terrific news for the overall market. Guys, back to you.
0: Speaking of Zoom fatigue, Bob, and we were talking about the floor reopening yesterday. I mean, for a few people, do you know when they'll let you know CNBC and other media uh, people back in the building, or or or, I mean, is there any talk about that, or do you think that's still a long ways off?
1: Oh sure, oh sure. There's a there's a they don't saying it, but there's a timetable. They're going to sit on this for a couple weeks. They're going to see what happens. They're going to see if trading goes fine. They're going to make sure, of course, there's no reinfections. That's obviously uh, an issue for that. And I think probably you give it two or three weeks. There'll be some discussions with the the designated market makers, the guys who make markets in the stocks that have the posts that we know all about, there'll be some pressure on them to say, "Okay, are you interested in coming back? Remember, there's legal issues involved. They have to sign an indemnification agreement. And there's medical issues. Their own people have to feel comfortable. And those companies are bigger companies. So there's some issues and comfort level and legal issues that kind of have to be worked out.
0: Yeah. Well, it'd be better. We'd miss the posters, you know, if you go back. It it will be a very different, (laughs) you know, be nice in some ways, but, you know, bittersweet. Uh, Anyway.
1: I keep rotating them.
0: I know. I'm sure it's getting old at this point, uh, but not for us. Bob, thanks so much. Uh, we'll check in in a bit. Thank That's Bob Bassani walking through these markets today. And as you can see, the Dow and the S&P are both trading higher and at levels not seen since early March. Today's winners do fall mainly in the reopening economy basket. They're retail, travel, the big banks, which are up big over the last couple of sessions. Is it all a good sign for the road ahead or a bit of irrational exuberance? For more, I'm joined by Jim Karen, Global Fixed Income Portfolio Manager at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. And Charles Babrinskoy is Head of the investment group at Ariel Investments. Great to see you, Charlie. What are your thoughts? I mean, the market has staged a, a nice rebound here. Um, some parts of it are back to all-time highs, even surprising parts like truck, you know, trucking, for example. Um, so in a way, I wonder if that makes it more difficult for you um, to kind of pick the right investments now.
2: So we've been investing in small and mid-cap value stocks since the firm was founded in 1983. And that part of the market has absolutely not come back too far. The uh, Russell 2000 value index is still down 24% beginning of today. Uh, So this trade, if you will, is all about the fact that we believe we are going to get to the other side of this. And when we get to the other side of this, these names like retailers and Madison Square Garden, where people go to watch sporting events, those stocks are going to be fine. The earnings are going to come back. It's just a question of when the stock market uh, sees that. And we're delighted that on a day like today, it seems to be seeing it, but we've got a long way to go.
0: Yeah. I mean, people are, are going to kind of be reeling when they see that your two of your picks are MSG, Madison Square Garden, especially <laughs> it's a controversial one in this part of the country. Um, and Viacom, CBS, uh, Goldman Sachs is also up there. What do you make, Charlie, of the rebound of the financials the last couple of days?
2: that some of them were just ridiculously cheap. Goldman Sachs, I always use this story, but it's true. People fought to be a partner of Goldman Sachs for almost 100 years for the right to buy stock at book. And a month ago, you could have bought Goldman Sachs at 70% of book. It was just crazy. And that book was publicly traded, mostly publicly traded stocks and bonds. Today, it's still only 85% of book. So the stock is very, very cheap. Um, Madison Square Garden Entertainment, which owns Madison Square Garden, was trading for right around net cash. Hmm. They sold the forum. uh, They're going to get a lot of cash when it comes in. That's going to be about $62 a share. The stock at one point was under net cash. These stocks
3: were just way too cheap.
0: All right. Well, Jim, I'm not going to put you on the spot on on Madison Square Garden or the Knicks or anything. Uh, In fact, I'm going to bring in Rick Santelli uh, with the results of, I think, the five-year auction uh, that just went off top of the hour. Rick, how did it go?
4: You know, not well. Uh, I gave the auction a D as in dog below average. Let's go through the internals. 45 billion five year notes. That's a record amount of five year notes. The yield at the Dutch auction, 0.334. Also the lowest yield ever at a Dutch auction. And the reason the auction didn't go well right off the bat with pricing, that's a tail, is trading around 32 basis points in the when issued market. So higher yield, lower price on the final numbers. And all the internals are weak 2.28. Bid to cover weakest since July of 2019. The indirects of 57.3 below average, directs of 10.8 below average. Dealers take a large 31.8 compared to a 10 auction average of 26%. So we see that yesterday's shorter-term two-year went pretty well, average. Today, below average. Tomorrow's the seven-year. I'll be very interested in how the longest maturity is going to fare. But do keep in mind that at this point in time, when we're issuing so much debt, we really have to monitor the demand, especially now that the ECB and the European Union is going to be throwing even more supply into the marketplace. Kelly, back to you. Yeah,
0: Rick, I can't remember the last time you gave a D to an auction. That's surprising.
4: Yes, it's been a while, most of the auctions have actually been doing quite well as of late.
0: All right, Rick Santelli, thank you so much. That's a perfect uh, way to get b- back to you, Jim Karen, and kind of talk about fixed income. Yes, Treasury yields have been rising a little bit here. I don't know, would you read anything a little bit more troubling into the fact there wasn't much demand for this, this five-year Treasury note? Because like Rick said, we need to auction off a lot of paper here by the Treasury for the next few years.
5: Right, so I think there are two things that are going on that we have to focus on. One is when we think about the pandemic, This is a bad story, but it's a bad story right now that's getting less bad. So that's broadly good for the markets. And I think that's where you see the widening of the breath and many sectors of the markets are starting to perform better, including credit, high yield, investment grades, spreads are coming in. But now let's talk about treasuries. Treasury yields staying low is a good story. That has been a really, really good story because that's the monetary policy transmission mechanism that the Fed has injected. That's kept interest rates low. It's kept refinancing rates low for corporations. And they could roll over their debt. They had access to the capital markets. This is a solvency issue that's been helped by keeping interest rates low. But here's the problem. If interest rates start to rise, then that's a good story getting less good. So just like the pandemic might be a bad story getting less bad and that's bullish, well, interest rates rising would be a good story getting less good. And then we have to start to worry about all the positive effects that lower interest rates have had, that that might start to fall away. But hey, let's face it, rates are still really, really low. Ten-year Treasury can't get above 70 basis points at this time. I think that's good. I think as long as that's the case and as long as the dollar stays relatively stable, it might weaken a little bit. I think that that is still a good vote of confidence uh, for riskier assets to continue to do well. So watch those interest rates if they start to rise. And if the dollar starts to fall, that could unravel a lot of the good things that's been happening.
0: All right, Charlie, I'll bring you back in with one final comment, uh, kind of in response to that and, and you know what Rick just said, too. You know, people kind of maybe shying away a little bit uh, from the Treasury auction at those low yields.
2: Yeah, I, everybody's entailed their opinion. I think it would be very good news if, if Treasury rates went up. It would mean people weren't hiding in Treasuries. People are buying Treasuries because they're afraid. Interest rates in Treasuries are going to go up when people are less afraid. We've never had 70 basis points 10 years. The average is closer to 4%. Uh, interest rates should, treasury rates should go up a lot, and that'll be a very healthy for, uh, sign about the economy.
0: All right, there we'll leave it. Charlie Wabrinskoy, Jim Karen, thank you both for coming sharing your point of view today. Appreciate it very much. And we have more signs that the housing market is rebounding. Speaking of rate-sensitive parts of the economy, mortgage applications just rose for the sixth straight week. Diana Olick joins me with more on that. Diana?
6: Yeah, Kelly, the housing numbers just keep outdoing themselves. Mortgage applications to purchase a home rose 9% last week compared with the previous week and were 9% higher annually. That is the first annual gain since the pandemic hit, and it's a stunning 54% recovery just since early April all according to the Mortgage Bankers Association. In addition, the amount of these loan applications has been rising steadily and is now at the highest level since mid-March, so home prices are not exactly coming down. Now, buyers have been helped by really low mortgage rates, which hit another record low last Friday. That gives them more purchasing power, all this on top of an unexpectedly strong sales pace just reported for newly built homes in April. They were forecast to fall 22%, but instead rose slightly. Now tomorrow we do get April pending home sales, that's signed contracts for existing homes. This one may still be rough, not for lack of demand, but because of a real crisis in supply. Now at record low because sellers pulled their listings and potential sellers decided to wait all this out. Kelly?
0: Yeah, that's a pretty dramatic chart on the inventory. The interesting thing, too, Diana, is that mortgage rates are still higher than they quote-unquote should be. You know, the Journal had made a big splash about this yesterday as well. So you wonder, you know... I guess it's going to be the battle between those two factors, but fundamentally, it seems like there's strong demand for housing right now. And that's been the biggest surprise of 2020 throughout the pandemic.
6: Yeah, and mortgage rates should come down a little bit as some of the risk comes out of the mortgage market and you start to see those spreads shrink. But I'll tell you, an agent just came out of this house and I spoke to her. She said she is desperate to find houses to sell right now and is actually going back to buyers who pulled their listings in March to ask them, will you put it back on the market again? And I mentioned the bidding war on our street the other day. Cash buyers uh, for some of these properties
0: coming out of the cities. Uh, Diana, thanks. Appreciate it. Diana Olick with the latest on the housing stats. Coming up, from the careful economy to the headaches and costs of testing employees, a closer look at the new normal and how consumers are faring in this environment. Plus, from the stay-at-home trade to the get-me-out trade, a look at the stocks best positioned as people begin to leave their homes. And taking antibodies from COVID-19 survivors and finding the best ones to fight the virus. That's what biotech company AB Celera is doing in partnership with Eli Lilly. The CEO joins us live with a look at that technology and the timeline. Stay with us. Welcome back. Take a look at this uh, images of two NASA uh, astronauts, the two who are about to board the SpaceX rocket at Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Uh, there they are as they continue to make their way in preparation for this event. The launch time is expected at 4:33 Eastern ch- uh, time. Where we're just a few hours away now. It was about 50/50 because of weather conditions, but the NASA head about half an hour ago tweeted that it does look like the event is moving forward. Uh, crowds were discouraged from gathering at Kennedy Space Center because of coronavirus. NASA does have have a live stream uh, that they are launching so you can watch it. And of course, we'll be following this for you all afternoon here. Uh, One of our reporters is on site. We'll be hearing from Morgan Brennan in just a moment, too, with more on the significance uh, of this launch. Again, that could be the first time a private company launches. uh, Those are NASA astronauts with a couple decades of experience each between them uh, who will be going into space if this launch goes off in about three hours time. We'll continue to keep you posted. Just incredible stuff. Let's talk about some consumer confidence numbers, which are also incredible in May. They unexpectedly rose as the economy started to reopen. But as more people return to work and some companies begin testing employees for COVID-19, could we find ourselves in the early stages of this new careful economy? And what would that mean? For more, I'm joined by Steve Odland. He's president and CEO of the Conference Board and the former CEO of Office Depot and AutoZone. Steve, it's nice to see you again. And I, I want to talk actually first and foremost about like what companies you. are going to experience. You know, I read the other day that these coronavirus tests cost $100 a pop and I just don't understand. I mean, if if you have to test people daily or weekly or with any regularity, how are you going to do
7: that?
8: Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. You know, at first glance, it makes sense. Oh, sure, let's have the employers do it. There, you know, da 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 da. But you know, companies are not medical providers, and then there are lots of HIPAA regulations around uh, confidentiality and so forth. And how do you get a safe harbor there? And then to your point. Do you test weekly? Do you test every day? Do you test every hour at hundred bucks a pop across thousands of employees? Wow. That really adds up. And then you test them and then you send them into the workforce and you say, OK, it's OK to go in. But there's a three to four day lag time before, you know, and at that point they run around and they've infected exactly. everybody. Now is the company liable for this? So this is part of what needs to happen in the next package here from Congress. They need to define what the safe harbor operating principles are. We also need a rapid test. You know, if you could do a swab and right away know, well, that's that's different than, you know, letting people into the workforce. So we need protocols for all of this stuff and, and most importantly, legal uh, guidance, yeah. because so- if you don't have that, this is just a, a a nightmare waiting to happen.
0: Yes. Senate leader McConnell has said that, you know, a wave of lit- litigation related to coronavirus could be a second pandemic for the economy. So is the conference board, is that a, a top priority? Because there are some who say, look, their leadership is focused on the wrong things. They need to be focused on, you know, getting money to the states for relief. They need to be focused on, you know, maybe more money for uh, businesses directly. But Do you think that that regulatory shield, the liability shield, so to speak, um, how important is that for businesses to get back to work?
8: Well, Kelly, I just don't know how you can open the doors and and leave yourself wide open to the trial attorneys who are just sitting there waiting. I mean, this is the biggest bonanza they've ever seen, because no matter what happens, whoever gets sick, you know, you're. You're going to get accused of being liable if you've opened your doors. And if you just think about the number of retailers and the number of retail outlets at which you'd have to do testing, how can the companies take on this whole medical testing and, and, and all of the system and the liability? So, you know, look, if we want consumer confidence to, to really return, if we want jobs to return, we've got to provide a safe harbor in this for, uh, for companies to operate and, for, and then for the, for the workers and consumers to be confident that they can go out and not get sick.
0: So let's talk about that confidence, which both of the reading last month, the expectations index, which uh, we talked about yesterday with Jim Paulson, where he said, look, you rarely have expectations higher than current confidence. And every time you have, it's been a good signal uh, for a broader economic recovery. So, I mean, this has caught a lot of people by surprise that, that the confidence is, is coming back a little bit more strongly than expected.
8: It really caught me by surprise. You know, the Conference Board's Consumer Confidence Index went up one point, which is not a lot, but it went up a point in May. I would have expected it to continue to go down even after the steep declines in March and April. But, you know, usually the consumer confidence is driven by people's jobs, you know, what they're experiencing in their jobs. Remember, this is a a collaboration of many different components. The difference this time is that consumers expect improved business conditions over the next six months not necessarily improve conditions or financial conditions for themselves. That's really, really unusual. So the, the big thing here is that they think that we're, we're going to get back to business. That will, and so it's giving them hope that they can get back into their jobs and so forth. But I'll tell you what, when you get underneath the number and you start looking at what the um, expectations are for consumer spending, and you go through autos, you go through furniture, you go through household goods and, and so forth, it's abysmal. And so... Hmm. What I'm worried about is the holiday season. You know, we as a country rely on the holiday season. And if we don't get this really stabilized before, you know, November, you know, you're going to really seriously hurt the holiday season. And then forget any chance of a V. It's going to be, you know, more of a Nike swoosh than a... than a V kind of recovery. That's
0: really interesting. I didn't know that they were so cautious about those big spending plans. You know, like, you, understandable, but, but not, not, you know, the sign that maybe they think the clouds are going to part in the coming months. Interesting. Steve, thanks very much. Good to speak with you. Steve Odland is president and CEO of the Conference Board. Coming up, finding the right kind of antibodies to fight coronavirus. The CEO of biotech firm AB Cellera joins me next to talk about that and the company's partnership with Eli Lilly and their new round of funding. Plus, Disney World revealing its plans to reopen. We have a closer look at when and how they plan to keep people safe. And remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a couple. Welcome back now to the very latest in the coronavirus pandemic over to Sue Herrera for our headlines. Sue.
9: Thank you, Kelly. And good afternoon, everyone. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo meeting with President Trump at the White House. The meeting was closed to reporters, but yesterday Cuomo said that he would discuss the reopening plans and that state's economy. One idea involves creating jobs through infrastructure projects, many of which require federal support. Major League Baseball is proposing a tiered pay system for this year's shortened season. Under the plan, the league's highest-paid players would lose a bulk of their anticipated salaries for 2020. MLB says the proposal is, quote, consistent with the economic realities facing baseball. You can read more on that by going to CNBC.com. And Nevada's Governor Steve Sisolak says that casinos can reopen June 4th after being closed for 10 weeks. The gaming facilities are luring customers back to the Strip, with incentives like free parking and no resort fees. I'll be back in an hour. Kelly, back to you. You pack a lot in there, Sue. I mean, there there is, that is- There's uh, a lot going on.
0: There's a lot going on, exactly. Sue, we'll see you then. You got it. Sue Herrera. Meantime, the race to develop coronavirus treatments continues with antibody drugs getting a lot of attention these days. Meg Terrell joins me now with more on that. Hey Meg.
10: Hey, Kelly. Well, this class of drugs is one that we've heard a lot about from folks like Scott Gottlieb, who expects that they could be an important tool uh, in the toolbox against COVID-19 if we do see a resurgence in the fall. Now, uh, it basically involves the antibodies created by our immune systems when we encounter pathogens. A lot of these companies are isolating these antibodies from people who've recovered from COVID-19. And at least three of these companies say they plan to be in human clinical trials starting this summer. Regeneron planning to start those trials in June. They have a slightly different approach using mice to create these drugs. Uh, AbCellera and Eli Lilly are partnered together, uh, expecting to start trials in July. And Veer, along with its partner GSK, have said this summer as well. We also know Amgen, partnered with Adaptive Bio, is also in this race, among others. Uh, The news today from AbCellera is that it has uh, raised $105 million in a Series B financing round uh, from investors, including Orbamed, Eli Lilly, and Peter Thiel, among others. Joining us now is the CEO of Absalara, to tell us more about their approach uh, and what this funding will enable them to do, Dr. Carl Hansen. And Dr. Hansen, thanks for being with us. I wonder if you could just start out by explaining uh, what these drugs are, how you develop them and discover them from people who've recovered from this disease.
11: Thanks, Meg. Uh, great to be on the show today. Uh, so, Ebseller has developed a technology that allows us to scan, uh, decode, and analyze natural immune systems. Uh, at any given time, a human has a billion different immune cells, each which makes a different antibody. And we've created the search engine that lets us go through that massive diversity and find the molecules that are most likely to be advanced successfully towards a clinic.
10: And I understand that you had access to one of the first North American patients uh, with COVID-19. And uh, you said in a release that you had gotten access to that sample on February 25th. And now you've spelled out a timeline to getting into human testing by July. That's incredibly fast. I mean, just tell us how this is possible.
11: Yeah, it it has been a a remarkable few months. Uh, So to put it in perspective, normally a project like this would take anywhere from two and a half years to five years quite easily. Uh, Clearly, with COVID-19, no one has the the time for that. Um, So we received the first sample uh, at the very end of February. We started a program on March 1st, and over three days, we were able to screen over five and a half million immune cells from that patient. Uh, That resulted in the isolation of many lead lead candidate antibodies. Uh, shortly thereafter, we partnered with Eli Lilly, and together with them and the innovation and massive effort that they have put behind this program, uh, we are on track to meet the very ambitious goal of getting the first uh, antibody therapeutic into the clinic, uh, originally in July. And we, we are hopeful that we'll hit that, if not be that, beat that, uh, that deadline.
10: Well, I know that Regeneron's approach is to use a cocktail of antibodies, uh, so mm-hmm. more than one in the same drug. How are you and Lilly approaching this?
11: Well, I think we're going to let the data lead here. So we're going to have to get antibodies into the clinic and see how it works. Um, There are good motivations for having a cocktail. One of the big ones is that if the virus were to mutate, uh, it's more difficult to get away from a cocktail of antibodies. Uh, That's something that we're keeping an eye on right now. Uh, our number one priority is to get a safe, effective, and developable, manufacturable drug to the clinic as quickly as possible. Um, If we can do that with a single antibody that's ultra potent, that's the very best scenario because it means that we can apply more manufacturing capacity to that one antibody. And ultimately, that means we can help more patients.
10: And what does the pathway look like from getting into human trials to actually getting a drug that could treat COVID-19 or even prevent it as this approach might be able to do. How long would that take, do you think?
11: You know, uh, normally, again, that process would take several years. So we're in uncharted territory. Uh, There's been tremendous effort uh, in our partners, Eli Lilly, working with regulatory agencies to figure out what is the fastest path to get a therapy to patients and then through a variety of different clinical development steps. Um, The first application is likely to be for patients that are very sick, uh, but then there will be other groups of patients, uh, patients earlier in the disease or perhaps even prophylaxis. Those will be a a series of different trials, and I think it's too early to speculate when exactly those will will read out and when we'll have the results uh, because, again, we're going to be led by the science in this.
10: Absolutely. And uh, I know it's very early days, but one thing we've been trying to glean from the leaders of companies working in this space is their approach to uh, profiting from the medicines or vaccines they developed during this pandemic. Uh, AbCellera is a private company, but you obviously do have investors. You just announced some more of them today. What is your approach to, if you are successful, pricing this drug and potentially profiting during the pandemic?
11: It's A great question. I, I think it's uh, natural, given uh, the attention that's on COVID-19 right now, to uh, bring these two events together, the financing that we've just announced on COVID-19. But the reality is, we've been working on this financing since last fall. Uh, and the syndicate investors and plan for the use of proceeds was put in long before COVID-19 um, was on the table. Uh, with respect to pricing, Uh, We are a drug discovery company. We work on the front end and on the preclinical development. We have partnered with Lilly, who's taking on the manufacturing, clinical development, and ultimately the commercial development of this drug. Uh, I believe it's the case that Lilly, as well as other groups in this, are doing it primarily uh, to bring something out to the world that we need right now. Um, And I don't believe there's a strong profit motive uh, in this for Eli Lilly or for others in this space.
10: All right, Dr. Hanson, thanks for joining us today. And we look forward to hearing more about your progress as this continues.
11: Thanks so much, Meg. Pleasure. I'll
10: back uh, over to
0: you. Absolutely, Carl. Uh, thank you for joining us. And Meg, thanks for bringing that to us. Meg Terrell uh, with the latest on these COVID efforts. Coming up. From uh, boating to golfing to hiking and even fishing, people are picking up some of the more solitary activities as they emerge from their homes these days. We're going to look at which stocks best are our best positioned, she said, to benefit. Moving on. The Paycheck Protection Program has come under a lot of criticism. As the House gets ready to vote on how to fix it, we'll look at what is likely to change and what that will mean for small businesses. And as we had to break, take a look at shares of tractor supply, a monster of more than 6 percent now on much better than expected outlook of 20 to 20 25% growth in same-store sales. This stock is up 47% since the nationwide lockdown began in mid-March, making it the best gain of any retail stock in the S&P 500. We're back in a couple. Welcome back to the exchange. Dow's up 200 points. S&P hanging on to a gain and the NASDAQ is negative by half of a percent. So a lot of rotation underway the last couple sessions. We've been talking all about that. But one of the industries that's posting big gains lately is digital payments. Dominic Chu has more for us. Dom.
3: All right. So, Kelly, just one of those industries within technology broader overall, because that technology sector has been an outperforming S&P on the way down to the COVID-19 pandemic lows in the market and have been outperforming since then. But you mentioned those payments companies Take a look at some of those because four of these companies within the S&P 500 technology sector are actually far outperforming the bigger bounce in the sector itself. And many of these companies either provide payment services, peer-to-peer services, payments processing. You get the idea. PayPal shares, which have now kind of fallen from record highs that we've seen in the last week or so, are up 79 percent since the March 23rd low. Global Payments provides payment services to companies, also 69 percent above. And then MasterCard and Visa, two of the companies that we associate with payments processing, those shares up 45 and 52 percent as well. So a very red hot part of this market amid the COVID-19 bounce back, Kelly, has been these payment companies and industry to watch going forward. Back over to you. Yeah,
0: surprising. Uh, Dom, thanks so much. Appreciate it, Dom Chu. And some good news for Disney fans. There's an opening date for parks here in the U.S. Julia Borson spoke with Disney's CEO earlier today and is here now with the details of this reopening plan. Julia.
12: Kelly, that's right. Disney is starting its phased reopening of its Orlando park on July 11th, the Magic Kingdom and Animal Kingdom, followed by Epcot and Hollywood Studios then on July 15th. Disney CEO Bob Chapek telling me that the park will operate at limited capacity. He didn't say just how limited it would be to enable six feet social distancing guidelines and that the park will operate profitably.
13: We believe that we'll be at least able to cover our costs of uh, opening up our, our parks. But at the same time, work then incrementally as either uh, we become better at uh, you know uh, putting more folks inside the park or the guidelines loosen up a little bit. So we'll slowly but surely make baby steps for improving the number of guests that we can accommodate in our parks.
12: And Chapek says demand for the parks is strong with, quote, tremendous number of reservations on the books. And that demand at Disney Springs, that's the mall adjacent to Disney World that opened a couple weeks ago, has been, quote, very encouraging. Now, Chapek also said that he would be very excited to have both the NBA and Major League Soccer play the rest of their seasons at Disney World, which they're in discussions about right now. Kelly, how would that work? I mean, they
0: can't do it all at once or maybe they can. Maybe there's room for everybody.
12: Well, I think the idea is, and this is still very much in discussions, it hasn't been finalized yet, is that you would bring the teams together and that the teams and the production, um, the product people involved in production would be basically isolated there together. You'd be able to control who goes in and out. You could do COVID tests as people um, sort of enter that bubble. And then there wouldn't be any fans in the stands, but it would get some uh, some live sports back on TV again, which, of course, there's a lot of demand for right now.
0: Very interesting. Julia, thanks uh, for bringing us those details again on the reopening of Disney parks here in the U.S. Take a look at this shot of the two NASA astronauts, Bob Benkin and Doug Hurley, arriving at the launch pad at the Kennedy Space Center. If you squint, you can see him there. Uh, this launch is expected at about 4.33 p.m. Eastern time, Uh, There we go. There they are, dressed up all in their white, uh, arriving in white Teslas, uh, specifically made for this event, of course. We're going to have a whole lot more on what has gone into their arrival here with Morgan Brennan in just a moment. Uh, But again, Bob Bank and Doug Hurley uh, making their way over to the launch pad now uh, for this 4.30 p.m. Eastern time, it'll be the first manned commercial launch. Uh, So a historic moment on the way, potentially. Coming up, take a look at this chart. It's up 3% today and nearly 27% over the past month. And one analyst says it's now a buy as the weather warms up and state lockdowns are lifted. We'll reveal that name a little bit later on. But first, there's a House vote tomorrow on some fixes to the highly criticized Paycheck Protection Program. What Congress needs to change and will is next. Welcome back with a news flash here on Win Las Vegas. The shares are up a little, uh, less than two percent right now, as they've just announced June fourth as a reopening date. Again, Win Las Vegas uh, announcing June fourth for their reopening. Both hotel towers and casino, as well as all restaurants, will be open on that date. The casino stocks are all rallying hard in anticipation of these announcements. Uh, there you can see about a two percent lift on the confirmation of their plans to open June fourth today. It's meantime a busy week for Congress, with the House voting tomorrow on fixes. To- the Paycheck Protection Program after much criticism. Following that vote, Congress takes up legislation to delist Chinese companies as tensions escalate between the U.S. and China over Hong Kong and the coronavirus pandemic. With me now for more are Jarrett Seberg, financial services and housing policy analyst at the Cowan Washington Research Group, and Libby Cantrell is head of public policy at PIMCO. And it's great to see you both. Libby, let me just start with you on, on what changes you expect uh, them to make to PPP.
14: Yeah, Kelly, well, uh, good to be with you as well. So this is, um, they're, they're making some changes in, on, on issues that they've gotten a lot of feedback from. Um, the Treasury Department has claimed that they cannot make these changes unilaterally, that they need Congress to make these changes. I think there are some people who may disagree with that. But the point is, is that this bill will address two important things. One is the period um, that uh, that will allow the forgiveness of loans, which is, right now in 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 the law it's only eight weeks this would exp- extend it to twenty four weeks and then importantly, it would also provide some clarity that in order to get loan forgiveness um, Proceeds don't necessarily need to go just to these, to 75 to, percent to pay for payrolls. Now, been an important sticking point, hmm. uh, businesses have struggled with this particular issue. So these are two very welcome changes. I think some people will say it's, a too, it's kind of too little, too late, but important that they're doing it nevertheless.
0: Jerry, what does it tell you that all of the funds available have not actually been taken up now uh, since they re-upped the PPP program?
15: Well, sure. So imagine you're a small business owner and you hear about this great deal and you can get this cash. And then every day there's a new rule, a new restriction on how you can spend it. Um, I think there's just a lot of fear out there that the monies aren't going to be forgiven and that if you bring back these employees before you have customers and then you can't get the loan forgiven, that you've driven yourself straight into bankruptcy. And so when we look at this legislation, this is really about providing that clarity not just uh, for those who have taken out loans, but so that new applicants will show up and spend the $100 billion that's still sitting there.
0: Yeah, I thought it was interesting you say these changes aren't meant to be radical. If anything, they restore the program closer to what Congress intended when it was originally passed. Um, but th- again, there's still about $100 billion left. So do you think those funds now will be more eagerly tapped? Or does that tell us, especially if they change the period of using the funds from 8 to 24 weeks, uh, do you think that will help small businesses help the recovery?
15: I think this is an enormously important first step, but it's not going to to fix the problem. At the end of the day, you have some companies that are already in week six or seven of the eight weeks where they felt they had to spend the money. They're probably gonna need an additional amount of financing to pay the rent, to keep the lights on until social distancing has eased enough for customers to come back. But, I mean, this is still a big step, you know, and and this should get that other 100 billion out the door pretty quick.
0: Interesting. Libby, let me turn to you on the issue of China. Like you said, I mean, this is now coming up next. And just today, Secretary Pompeo basically changed the status of Hong Kong to say it's not you know, autonomous from China. How does that play into uh, what Congress has to do now, especially as the vote to to grant its special status comes up again, I think, uh, any day now?
14: Yeah, that's right, Kelly. I mean, you know, we think that, just, just kind of taking a step back, that sort of tensions around China are really underappreciated risk by the market. In some ways, it's sort of the perfect storm. Um, this, is, this is an issue that President Trump, obviously, has spent much of his administration focusing on. It polls particularly well. Um, it also polls well in terms of, um, you know, Americans thinking that the Chinese, in some ways, were responsible for... Uh, the dissemination of of the virus, and then of course, now you have um, the sovereignty of Hong Kong a question, and then also you add to that, of course, the um, sort of lack of honoring of the phase one trade deal by the Chinese for all you know different sorts of reasons. so this again, kind of the perfect storm of issues around China here, what we're seeing um, as it relates to Congress, you know moving forward with a bill um, that would allow for the president to set sanctions on um, folks that uh, have found to be oppressing Uyghur groups. The bill that you just referred to, in terms of uh, delisting foreign companies that don't adhere to, to mm-hmm. FASD rules, uh, really directed at Chinese companies. So, in in some ways, you know, that's sort of more symbolic than it is substantive. But the point here is is that there is a lot of risk around escalation with China. And I think, importantly, from a market's perspective, there's also a risk that um, the president walks away from the phase one trade deal. I don't think that's something the market is, is necessarily focused on. But, again, I think it remains a risk, and it's probably an increasing risk even since,
0: uh, you know, the last month. Yeah, Jared, and we remember how the market reacted uh, during the last mm-hmm. round of, of talks and deals and tariffs, and it, it was not happy. Let me ask you from the financial services point of view in particular, I mean, if Hong Kong is basically about to become just another city in China as far as U.S. Uh, lawmaking is concerned, what does that imply uh, for the future of global financial services? I mean, do these do these companies just flee Hong Kong or do they deal with it?
15: Well, that's a big problem, right, because if you look at the legislation that the Senate passed last week by unanimous consent, you know, it would force Chinese companies to, to delist because the Chinese government won't allow the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board uh, to review their audits. China's unlikely to change that policy, and so we're actually pushing companies out of the United States uh, exchanges and to Hong Kong, At the very time that Hong Kong is increasingly in more and more chaos. Um, Overall, I just think this is a destabilizing situation at a time when COVID-19 is already creating enough global financial headaches. And so, you know, when it comes to to fights that are worth having over whether uh, Chinese companies accurately disclose their financials, that probably is a good fight to have. This just may not be the time to have it.
0: Well, no time like the present, (laughs) so so to speak. Uh, We'll see, though. Obviously, there's so many uh, moving pieces of this and the campaign trail on top of everything else. So, uh, Jared Seberg, Libby Cantrell, thanks, guys, for at least helping us kind of get some perspective on, on what could come from Washington in the next couple of weeks. Appreciate it very much. Pleasure. Coming up, we're just a few hours away from the first manned commercial space flight. You're looking now at live pictures of astronauts Bob Behnken and Douglas Hurley, who have arrived at the launch pad and are now making their way up to the capsule. We're going to check in with Morgan Brennan for the very latest on this right after the short break. Stay right here.
1: gonna have uh, an option to have uh, rocket thrusters. Rocket thruster. Yes, from SpaceX. All right. Yeah. How, uh, how does that work? See, I don't know when you're kidding <laughs> and when you're not. Now. No, I, in this I, case, I am serious. You're gonna have rocket thrusters. Um, yes, and what will provide the thrust? There's no fuel in the car. No, we're going to use ultra high pressure compressed air. Oh, I see. Okay. So cold gas thruster. Okay. Um, All right. The main thruster will be like uh, behind the license plate. Right. So uh, for acceleration, it drops license plate, and just and and that behind license plate is a rocket thruster. That's like full on James Bond. <laughs>
0: Elon Musk on tonight's episode of Jay Leno's Garage. You can catch the whole thing right here on CNBC at 10 p.m. Eastern time. That's fortuitous timing, uh, because speaking of rocket thrusters, Musk's SpaceX is preparing to launch the first manned commercial spacecraft ever in just a couple hours. Morgan Brennan joins us now with more. Uh, we already saw them, uh, Morgan, making their way into the, the rocket, into the capsule and, and out of those white Teslas. And they, yeah, it's so cool. A lot of stuff going on.
7: It, it is so cool. And right now, as it stands, and there's some inclement weather, so right now, you could call about 50% go, but NASA is moving and preparing as if this launch is going to happen at 4.33 p.m. Eastern. President Trump is en route as we speak as well, down to Kennedy Space Center. Billions of dollars, years of planning for this historic moment as these NASA astronauts, Bob Behnken and Doug Curley, get ready to, if all goes according to plan, lift off as I mentioned, just after 4.30 to the International Space Station in SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule. That's going to mark the first time people have gone to orbit from U.S. soil in nearly a decade. Also the first time ever in a commercial spacecraft. So we were just showing you some video. They're already making their way onto that Dragon capsule right now as we speak. It sits atop a Falcon 9 rocket. So they're about 26 stories up right now to run tests in a highly automated cockpit that has been described as a, quote, flying iPhone, thanks to its touchscreens. Now, we also saw earlier this hour, and I know you uh, highlighted it, Kelly, clad in those SpaceX-designed suits, the astronauts riding to launch Pad 39A in what else? Color-coordinated Tesla Model X with the retro NASA worm logo on the side uh, of the car. SpaceX is handling mission control rather than NASA. The company is also going to attempt to re-land the rocket's first stage booster post-launch. Heaven forbid the mission is aborted in flight. The 45th Space Wing is on standby with a crew and quite frankly, an army of vehicles and different types of um, uh, hardware to help bring those astronauts home safely. But hopefully this time tomorrow, if all goes according to plan, Bankin and Hurley will be docking at the ISS for a one to four month stay and really ushering in, Kelly, a new era of human spaceflight that is defined by public-private partnership and that NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine believes will lead to the broader commercialization of space. Yeah, after. and
0: that's one thing I misunderstood. I thought they were coming back in just a couple of days, but it sounds like this is going to be a longer visit, and it means that we don't have to, to turn to the Russians to get to the International Space Station. So, step one, uh, we'll see if this launch goes off this afternoon. Um, Morgan, we'll see you again, but, I mean, just just incredible. You know, I don't hate space today. I love it. I love it. I can't, I can't, I can't get enough of it. <laughs> Morgan, thank you. We'll see you later. That's our Morgan Brennan. Uh, still ahead, you know the stay-at-home stocks, Zoom, Netflix, just to name a few, but one analyst says, now we should bet on the parks and rec trade. He'll explain and give us his best ideas next. Then coming up on Power Lunch with stocks rallying again today, Cowan CEO Jeff Solomon will join us to talk about that, how they're positioned, uh, what he thinks about the recovery. Don't miss it. We're back in two. After months of sheltering in place, stir-crazy folks are looking for safe ways to get out of the house. Some people are hitting the golf course, while others are headed to the beach for socially distancing uh, activities like kayaking or fishing. My next guest says as more people eschew traditional entertainment venues like movie theaters, theme parks, and the like for the outdoors, certain stocks are well-positioned for our post-pandemic reality. Here to talk about the rise of solitary leisure is Robbie Ohm, Senior Retail Analyst at Bank of America. Robbie, it's good to have you. And, I mean, bottom line, one of the picks here is uh, Yeti, right, for the coolers?
13: That is right. Uh, You know, coolers, you find them in parks, boats, Beaches. You also find their drinkware uh, all over those places as well. So, you know, solitary leisure is one of the things we're seeing in the, in the data trends. You know, heading into May and. Yeti is a really uh, great fit within those trends.
0: One of your other main picks here is Dick's Sporting Goods. And I am curious. I mean, they've had to deal with not selling firearms, which people also I think has been one of the biggest uh, sellers the last couple of months. Um, So how much of a tailwind do you think Dick's has and how much of a headwind is it if uh, they don't (laughs) they don't sell uh, some of the products anyway people are looking for?
13: You know, they, they definitely have some headwinds like uh, firearms. But I think, you know, one of the surprises is that, uh, you know, when we looked at the BAC credit card uh, and debit card data, you saw this uh, big jump heading into May in uh, things like golf and marine related spending. And, and Dick Sporting Goods, uh, you know, is one of the largest golf retailers in the U.S. They sell fishing equipment. They're big in home fitness uh, and they're big in bicycles. Those are all categories we highlighted in the note that you saw this big kind of acceleration in spending, uh, you know, heading into May here. That you know, if that continues, you know, that could help offset some of those headwinds for Dick's Sporting Goods.
0: It's interesting. And these are the two names you primarily highlighted. We spoke yesterday with the CEO of Winnebago. They do a lot of boating. And he said they, they've seen huge demand there. It kind of matches anecdotally with what we've heard. Are there any other companies or or kind of investment ideas that you would encourage people to think about?
13: I mean, anything that's exposed to outdoor lifestyle activity, you know, again, we we call it um, solitary leisure for lack of a better word. But if you look at the categories that that have upticked, it's they're accessible uh, and they involve, you know, sort of built in social distancing and, and things like that. And. So we'll see if this trend continues, but it's, it's a very strong trend so far.
0: I'm even thinking about, you know, people getting out to mow their lawns. I mean, tractor supply is a monster. Are valuations for you a concern with any of these names? I mean, they, all, they have rebounded nicely.
13: You know, they have rebounded nicely. And I think the, the best answer I can give to that is, you know, if the sales momentum in these, uh, you know, solitary leisure categories offsets some of those headwinds that you brought up, you could see uh, earnings upside relative to where the consensus is, and that would uh, also result in the stocks going higher. And then you could get multiple expansion if the market decided that some of these solitary leisure activities, uh, you know, like bicycling, uh, were just going to be a short-term trend.
0: Mm. Exactly. I know we're uh, we're going to the bike store in town as soon as it opens. (laughs) Uh, You know, we need just a used bike. Nothing too fancy. Uh, Anyway, by the time we do, they'll probably be all sold out. Robbie, thanks so much. And uh, definitely, like you said, Dix and Yeti, you think, are the two big beneficiaries. But thanks for joining me today. Robbie is with Bank of America. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place.